Greetings to all you folk out there in the world. Wherever you may be, welcome. This is Place-Based Media's podcast, Based Roots, and this is episode number two. And we're actually taking a little detour from our previous idea of the far center. That episode is still up, if you care to give it a listen. My name is Devin Hess, and I'm here on my own for this time, which is mostly going to be about laying down some groundwork to begin establishing some basis about who we are, and as well to give you folk a very general introduction to some of the ideas that have inspired this whole thing. So I would encourage you to look around our website where there will be other forms of content for myself and my partner Mala, who is my cohort in bringing this message to you. So go to placebasedmedia.org for more. And so to start today, I would like to say that what I'd like to do here is to try and make a clear delineation between what it means to be place-based versus what it means to be unrooted at least in terms of my own interpretation of what that means. And in order for me to do that, I'm going to have to do something I've never really done before, which is give you listeners some comprehensive idea that is true to what has inspired this project. And also what that means is I'm going to be talking a lot, which is actually something I've done very little of in my life. So I'm looking forward to it. And so... With all this, there is a lot to go over, and I think to start off, I'm going to be keeping all the subject matter to a very generalized stance, because what has personally brought me here has been kind of a very long process of navigation, you could say. Not only by way of sifting through my own cultural conditioning, but also a process of gathering and attempting to discern a lot of information. And I think that's what we all do. And we do so until we're able to find ideas or concepts that become a validation of sorts for how we feel about the world or how we see the world. You know, it's also a validation for how we experience the world that we're looking for, right? And so just a general view of the landscape of my beliefs is all you're really going to get today. And from there, I hope we can start building some more layers into the future by way of kind of going into some of these ideas with more depth. Okay, so I mentioned that we're shifting gears a little bit by calling this podcast Based Roots, and we're doing that for a couple of reasons. One of those being that the reality for us was that the previous name of the Far Center just wasn't a very good representation of what we felt like we actually stood for. And, you know, as simple as a name might seem, it is pretty important, especially in our beginning stages as we're attempting to build an identity for ourselves, you could say. Which, as far as place-based is concerned, is a pretty complex idea in some ways, and it's also really simple, too. Or at least there's a lot of depth to it. So the challenge is, and will probably always continue to be, how we develop conversation and language about something that is in many ways very contrary to the ethos of our day, if not a polar opposite. To me, you could say it's simple because what more should anyone in the world need or want but their very own place to connect with in the world? You know, their very own territory to exist and to struggle and thrive amongst all the creatures and all the elements that are really doing the exact same thing. And, you know, you could say it's complex because there aren't always answers to some of the root questions of the world as to why. And, you know, when or if we do answer the why, I think we do so only for ourselves and we don't do it for anyone else. And so it should go without saying that this project is our own interpretations and perspectives of our understandings. And those are understandings that we like to say come directly from our place, which is to us something much more than the dirt beneath our feet. So with that, thanks to everyone for tuning in again. 
and making it part of your own inquiry into your own questions or your own search for meaning. I hope you walk away with not just a better understanding of place-based media, but also with more questions to go out and answer for yourselves. All right, so let's get into it. So lots of different points here that I'm going to make. And I hope in the future I get to elaborate more on each of these points. But right now, we're just going to start laying those down. So point number one is to actually address the name change of our podcast. And we're going to do this by way of understanding identity and also the reality of hierarchy within identity. And through all this, I hope to kind of interconnect and weave some of the ideas about what place-based media is, which is also in a way analogous for something that is much bigger than who we are specifically. So to start, we'll just say that one month ago, we put out our first episode and we titled it The Far Center. And, you know, part of that was trying to figure out, you know, what we were trying to do and just simply going out and doing it. And, you know, whether you know how you want to do something or not do it all the time is not necessarily important, but it is important that we just start and see what works. So that's what we did. And I'll say that our intentions with the show got somewhat derailed when we had what I would say were some irreconcilable differences with a friend. And that friend's no longer participating with us. So if anything, I think it's a good thing because it helps me see a bit more clearly towards the path that we're trying to take. And it also kind of through that whole process seems somewhat interconnected and symbolic of the nature of conflict that we're dealing with in the world today. You know, another way of putting it is sometimes to know who you are, you've got to know who you are not. And that's part of the process of finding your identity. And so tribe is a big part of identity. And the culture that we belong to is a part of our identity. And that is the case because we've agreed to make it so. We are in agreement with other people or forces about the way we want to live and operate. And a tribal unit can really only function and be successful because of the, the agreements of tenets that make up a hierarchy of sorts or ideas or concepts that you could say serve as a foundational point from which we create anything within the world. And so in anything creative that involves multiple people, you have to have some basis of agreements. Otherwise, it becomes nearly impossible to create what it is you've set out to do. And through those creations or decisions to live and act in a certain way, identity is ultimately formed, which is simple enough, right? And so identity within a tribe is also hierarchy. It is agreements of standards or virtues by which one would choose to live by, okay? So that's point number one. And when most people think of hierarchy, they I think they tend to think of it as like a food chain or they might think of it as who's first in command or maybe it's something based on domination or natural selection or those types of things. And it is those things. That's all true and part of it. But the point that I'm trying to make is that hierarchy is also agreements about what ideas are most important to prioritize. And so the word identity itself even comes from the same word as identify, or another related word to that would be identical, which is the quality of things being the same, right? And so in our last talk, we briefly mentioned the scale of identity, which is an important concept to us, and it's one we're probably going to be bringing up a lot. Because when we talk about the scale of identity, it's important to note that our agreed-upon sameness starts and ends at being a human. And after you kind of scale yourself down from being a human, what is left is really a whole complexity of life experiences and perceptions and social arrangement arrangements. And of course, there's environmental adaptations that 
determine things like group cohesion and our response to the landscape and all those different things. And any of that would, I think, would be pretty foolish for anyone to deny. So you could say, like, to follow up on that, I identify with every person in the world by the standard that I'm a human, right? But I can't say that all humans are my tribe because simply being a human is not at the top of my list in terms of what dictates my everyday decision-making in life. And it's not at the top of the list because there's absolutely really no objective standards by which humans will choose to operate in this world. Other than perhaps survival, which is a characteristic that all life shares, so that doesn't really count, or we can at least say that it's a given. So this is why I say that identity is hierarchical, and with that, why tribe is a necessary component of having a healthy identity, and also why basing one's identity off of global or universalist hierarchical values is not only unnatural, but also very detrimental to having a healthy and a rooted identity. And I'm not going to mean to be sounding condescending with it, but right now in the world, you know, people's recognition or their lack of a recognition of the reality of natural hierarchies is prevalent as ever. And it's kind of the mind of a child in a lot of ways. And, you know, it's no wonder with that why people want to cry to the government in order to get their way or why you could say they're attracted to types of disempowering ideologies that we see out there. You know, what it is, is it's very symbolic and it's very reflective of a paternal relationship. And I'm going to get into that a little bit more later. But that's basically point number two, that there is absolutely no objective standards by which all humans choose to operate, okay? Point number one was that identity is hierarchical and based on agreements of ideas as much as it's based on natural selection or something like that. But also, within a tribal hierarchy, it doesn't mean that there can't be subcategory disagreements, right? But the main point is that there's really no debate in a tribal group about what is most important. And that's what allows them to move forward and all agree on things and create things in the world, right? So an analogy might be like when you're working together to build a structure, if everyone decides they want the foundation to be stone and one guy says something like, well, that's a neat idea, but I think I'll use mud instead. And so he does that. And in the process, what happens is he creates a weak point in the foundation, and obviously then the integrity of the project becomes compromised. That much should be obvious. Another related analogy I actually heard recently that I really liked was that it only takes a single drop of food coloring moments before it tarnishes the entirety of a clear cup of water. And so the point is that I think any tribe or any strong and healthy social organization must think and operate with this understanding. But this is also where the disconnect is for most people in the world. And in some ways, it's a reference for our struggles to create a foundation for ourselves. But that's also something that now, through that struggle, we're starting to find our way through as a response to that struggle. Just like nature responds to its own obstacles and adapts. That's also what we're doing. So to move on from that, we could say that place-based media is about operating out of a place-based consciousness. And to understand what that is, I think you have to understand what that consciousness is not. What it is not is universalism which also takes its form as what most people might know as globalism. So point number three is that place-based consciousness is not an all-encompassing global ideology, okay? You cannot relate to the universe through universalism in other ways. 
And I'm going to get to that more later too. And so I would say that globalization or universalist ideologies in their many different forms as they express themselves, those are the mud that someone snuck into a foundation built of stone, okay? Those ideologies are a weak point that compromises a structure, or it's the food coloring that's polluting your ability to see clearly through that water. And so I think that understanding a rooted identity is a big part of actually defining us as place-based media, and also partially what it means to be place-based or indigenous to a place, you could even say. And also it's one path, I think, that can lead us to a deeper understanding and even a more holistic comprehension of the universe. And what that is, is one of a tribal mindset, and also one that is not coincidentally also staunchly anti-globalist. Okay, So identity itself is a hierarchical construct. And as far as universalism or globalism is concerned as an ideology, there's some trickery at play in terms of what they pose as or what people think all that is really about. So what those myths are, they're actually based off of pretending to be against hierarchy, okay? So they're a mimicry of something that – they're a mimicry of something that is actually true and natural. But by the nature of the global ideologies and how they manifest themselves, what they are doing is they're exceeding their boundaries of operations, okay? They exist outside of the capacities of the natural world. So they are a perversion. And what they do is they take their form as abstractions of reality. And as far as ideologies are concerned, they're all really just another form of empire seeking to render all other ideas or methods of living as incompatible to it. And so if your ideology or your belief system is one of universalism, this obviously becomes a pretty big problem for you. Because what you are promised in terms of a better world or a world where no conflict exists and everyone is free to live in peace and harmony or something, what that is, as we've come to find out, is just another form of a religion trying to control you with false promises of salvation either in this life or in heaven, or they offer you eternal life or maybe a universal wage or something like that. There's lots of different examples of how those ideas express themselves. And so from that perception of what is taking place, we've all come to the very radical conclusion that that's a world in which we really want no part of. And it's a world that also we hate. Because simply put, universalism is not rooted in the reality in which the earth itself functions. And that's a really big topic, and we're just going to reference it today. So that's just going to be point number four. You could just say, we hate globalization. And the number three was, you cannot relate to the universe through universalism. And, you know, with that also, I typically try not to polarize subjects because I do recognize that the world and humans are actually quite complex. That's why we talk about the scale of identity and such. But by the nature of the extreme contrasting values of each side, it really does seem like a black and white issue. And, of course, there's variables that exist that make subjects not so simple sometimes but I think you still do have to call a spade a spade. And so that's what I'm trying to do. And in many ways, you know, I also seek balance in my life, but I've come to understand that that's a balance in understanding, which is not necessarily the same as balance in practice, you know? So a balance in understanding is doing your best to decipher or comprehend both sides of an argument and why one person might take one side versus another, right? It's all a good thing to try to try to reach in your life. A balance in practice, just to put it simply, might just look more like not taking sides. 
and we always choose a side. Even not choosing is still choosing. And so if not for like the simple purpose of survival, you know, we'll always choose a side based on moral principle or something of the like. And so I don't seek a balance of in practice per se when it comes to creating my life because I have convictions and I have values and I try to live by those as best as I can. And you don't want to compromise on those things at all either. And so that's how I think we have to approach this when trying to talk to others because there's a disconnect again that one side thinks we can live in a global utopic world that interconnects everyone under the same rules and values. But what they're not doing is they're not recognizing the consequences that clearly show that that ideology is simultaneously actually destroying nearly all cultures and all identities in favor of one big shitty homogenous one. So what it's really about is domestication of the tribal spirit, you could say, into a herd mentality. You know, you can pretty much insert a sheep analogy, right? You know, they've got to have the sheep herders then, and they've got to have the hunters who will stop the predator from reminding the herd what's really going on, reminding them how the real world functions, so to speak. You know, that there's more to the world than the pasture or the pen that they live in. But I guess with that, I mean, the sheep are enslaved or they're slaughtered regardless, right? It's a funny thing about sheep. So, and then the rhetoric from the herd masters is usually something like, well, you know, you've got to stop the dangerous ideas from reaching people's minds because humans just can't think for themselves, you know. And what we're looking for is a one world unified under God or science, or we want equality and justice or something like that. And if people think differently, then they also might want to live differently. And if they live differently, then it may hinder them from having access to what others have because with equality, that means we all get free access to everything because then everything and everyone will be happy and not feel left out or something. And if everyone is happy, then everything is peaceful. And if everything is peaceful, then no one has to be afraid anymore, right? Which would be afraid of what? Like losing control, maybe? Afraid of what's wild and what's free? It's a scary concept for people. Freedom. So point number five is going to be that globalization undermines the natural process by which humans choose to self-determine. And so let's keep on that. So what are some of the ways that globalization undermines the natural process and natural social structures of humanity? And actually the natural world as well which is always interconnected. You know, we humans, we're only separate from nature via artificial constructs, whether that's a urban construct or even a psychological one. So what are the ways that globalization or universalist mindset becomes a hindrance to a tribal way of life? And this is the point where we could keep it simple and we could keep it political and talk about the IMF or, or the WMF or the United Nations or NATO. You know, we could talk about international banking and an economy that's based on an artificial construct of infinite growth, which is maintained by something known as interest-bearing debt or usury. You know, there's a lot of different things we could talk about. And within those subjects are subcategories that relate to the attacks on our food systems and in turn our health care and of course land management policies and civil law and so-called uh, rights of humans but none of those really get to the root of it you know they're all good things that i think there's plenty of information out there with 
simple Google searches and things like that and just kind of doing your own research. But those are all just really examples of the different control systems. And I think they're more merely just a symptom of the greater force that we're trying to get to and understand. They're not the roots of it. And so with that, I've got to get a little bit weirder here. So bear with me because there's a lot of different points. Um, and yeah, there's not enough time to give everything the full attention. I want to kind of get the foundation built here. But in the meantime, I'm trying to gather all the materials first, so to speak. So that's what this is. And so globalization or universalism, which if you can tell, I use those words interchangeably. Globalization is a myth. It is a living myth. And when I say myth, I don't use it as most people use it, as if myth is just a story or something like an event or an idea that's mostly untrue and maybe has some metaphors associated with it that we can draw from. No. Myth is everything, and everything in this world is myth. It's a story either given to us or it's passed down by oral traditions or otherwise or it's a story that we even tell ourselves about how the world is and how it functions. And that story is based off of our own observed experiences and also our interpretations of those experiences. And so globalization as a myth is really nothing more than an attempt to get all of humanity to come to an agreement that there's one best story for us to all live by. And so it's actually using mythology against you. And this is why it's really important to understand myths and stories, because that's all really life is. And as long as different cultures exist within the world, there will inevitably be different stories that inform their way of life. And to me, this is not only a good thing, but it's crucial to maintaining what I see as the awe-inspiring novelty of humanity. And so that's point number five again. That was globalization undermines the novelty and unique expressions of humanity. And there's a spoiler alert with that one too. You know, understanding that it does not have inherently positive or negative effects on the rest of the world. It just simply is what it is. And it's not something anyone gets to control. And there's a hard part for people with all that because different stories mean things like suffering and they mean things like pain and loss. And it means also that someone's maybe not going to like how you view the world. And it means that they might try to control how you see the world because of the threat, maybe, that it poses to their own beliefs. But all of it also means things like stories of triumph and stories of creation and heroic feats and things like that. It means everything that has given us all inspiring stories to live by. And it means, you could say, everything in the world that also develops us as unique and interesting peoples and cultures. And whether you like it or not, it also means war, because war is the final answer by which we resolve otherwise unresolvable conflicts. And I know that's a surprise and something that people like to deny or maybe avoid altogether, maybe just let government take care of it for you, right? And it's typically a pretty uncomfortable feeling that you could say the Western man or woman feels when being confronted with the reality of violence. And that's another big topic of conversation that I'm going to be talking a lot about in the future. But to put it simply, you could say that denying the reality of conflict as an inherent component of this world is denying nature herself, plain and simple. And that's point number six. And so... I do my best to live by and reflect what I would call a philosophy of nature. 
And you can also call it natural law or ecological law is another term that's used. But, excuse me, but within that philosophy is a guiding narrative for how I choose to live my life. And that guiding narrative, you could say, has led me to observe not only, you could say, all the wonderful kind of life-giving aspects of the earth that includes beautiful expressions, you know, of uh, interdependent relationships and things like that, but it also includes all of the harsh and the destructive realities. And, you know, I choose that story because it's a story that speaks to me and also because it's as close of a story to something that matches real life that I've ever come across. You know, we talk a lot about abstracts and all these beliefs that people have that might be rooted in something that is nothing really more than a psychological construct or something like that. And so I believe that the philosophy of nature or natural law, it's as real as it gets. And I've looked lots of different places. I didn't start off there. So for me, in these times, we need to be remythologizing ourselves within a tradition that is conducive for a way of life that gives us meaning through having things like reverence and understanding of the earth herself, because that is the base. That's the root of it all, okay? So I said my observations are that life and all these different things, they come from the earth herself. And what would be contrary to that would be a belief system that, say, comes from outer space, right? So put all your we are stardust shit aside for a moment, okay? And scale back down to Earth, okay? We, gotta, we always have to keep things in perspective, okay? So you can be global, you can be human, right, by those standards, but you're also somewhere very specific and all of your perceptions and ideas and realities about who you are and also about how the world functions is ultimately going to come down to your experience where you are specifically. And so I personally trust in the perfect storm that has brought me here right where I am. And you know what that is, is something that's happened and taken place through things like all my ancestors struggling. And it's happened through changes in the environment and its biological adaptations that come from that. So that's all quite amazing to me. And as it turned out, when I analyzed all that, what took place through that process of me coming to understand that is that nature itself was the one that informed me with that story, that reverence, the, uh, the belief system that kind of guides and inspires me. You know, what didn't inform me was a book about an off-planet alien god creator or something that is going to save me if I'm good, right? And so I also accept that not everyone in the world is going to think or understand the world as I do, and I'm okay with that. But what place-based is, it's about remythologizing our lives within an Earth-based tradition. And by our lives, I say... Anyone else out there listening that can identify with what I'm saying? There's that word, identify. Because it is through that process of storytelling and identifying that allows us to establish identity for our folks specifically, wherever we are. And that is something that's very much in contrast to what the modern world offers us. Or the uh, postmodern world as some refer to it, in which universalism promotes this free-for-all and a relativism in terms of ideology and morals, and yet through that relativism, we are still supposed to somehow play by the same rules. And you know, we've mentioned it before, that like anyone should be able to live anywhere they want and maybe eat food from anywhere in the world that they want at any time, and that Somehow there should be no consequences to anything. They never like to talk about consequences. 
you know, and the unfortunate thing about all that, about the reality of that, and what that teaches us is that there are consequences to everything. And any other view or opinion of that, that that there aren't, that's just a global or a utopic fantasy. And so even from my view, as far as atheism and scientific materialism is concerned, all these different constructs, they're all related and interconnected to the same thing. And that thing is salvationist ideologies, of which the three Abrahamic religions are definitely the most notorious. But what it ultimately is, is it's the almighty paternal father that will punish you if you're bad and save you if you're good. And it's really, it's very reflective of most governments also, because what they all are is they're all mythologies that seek some form of a dominant narrative that convinces people that someone else or something else is going to redeem you from sin or from the terrible nature of humanity or the evil nature of the earth even, right? You've heard that one before probably that humans are bad and the world would somehow be better off without us, right? And that's nothing more than just a nihilistic and self-hating kind of pathetic stance really that people take. And so that's point number seven, that salvationist and redemptive ideologies are the dominant ideology expressing themselves in nearly all forms of mainstream cultures and governments. And really what they're all promoting is what they're actually destroying. And so that's, again, kind of the trickery that's at play here in terms of what people think that is all about. And so, you know, you could say, like in the Bible, original sin was culture-making even itself. You know, it's, it's kind of considered an act of defiance against God's creation. You know, that act of self-determination, that act of sovereignty, you know, by eating the forbidden fruit of knowledge, Eve made the decision to trust in herself and to take responsibility for her own existence. You know, she sought uh, her own understanding of the world outside of that Eden that had so graciously been given to her. And thus what happened with that is she broke her faith in God. And from there, of course, she's got to go through that path of redemption, which is through a submission to a higher power to be saved, right? And so that right there is what reveals to me the contrast between a universal hierarchy versus a natural and earth-based hierarchy, okay? So in the modern day, science for many people is that higher salvationist power or government or the TV and news, you know, aside from religion and government, that's probably where most people are getting their religion from. And humanity's kind of so-called evil and tribal nature with all that, our tribal nature is the original sin from their perspective. And through all their promises of technology you know, not only can science save us from disease or from our own violent and sinful tendencies, but some also believe it can even save us from death, right? Save humanity from itself. Save us from the earth, you know? It's that cruel bitch of a mother, right, that we're meant to overcome and escape from as, quote, civilized humans, you know, we're going to go colonize Mars, right? Like, holy mother of space aliens, no thank you. And so that experiment, this experiment of globalization is actually a social science also. So make no mistake about that. It's not something that's, as far as we know, as far as history tells us, has never taken place before. And that's what we're right in the middle of right now. So, and whether the consequences, too, of that have been projected to be 
good or bad really makes no difference at all because what I see it as is all just a means to undermine the natural process of humanity. And that is to also undermine our ability to self-determine within our place, with our folk or our tribe, by the means that we choose, okay? What place-based ultimately ends up being then is it is the ultimate form of taking responsibility for your life and also for the well-being of your place with that, which in case you forgot, they're mutually exclusive aspects of our existence, okay? It's only the urban dweller that ends up forgetting such a thing, typically, you know? So we're very much at odds with anything that would limit our capacity to live in such a manner, which is, you know, of place, of our tribe and such, which is also something that is in exclusivity, right? Tribalism is fully exclusive. You can't have a single unique culture in the world if everyone's being bombarded and being told they're doing it wrong. And that's a horse that I'll ride into the ground all the way and beat it too. So obviously within these times, there are very few examples of true tribalism remaining in the world. And what is left of various tribes and their sovereignty is under attack. There's many expressions of tribalism, you could say, but kind of by the nature of the dominant culture, it's very challenging to maintain a fully exclusive sense of oneself or their tribe without being in some form influenced by the outside world. But regardless of the assimilation into so-called civilized society, I think there is a strong sense of a longing within people to reconnect to what that is, that tribal nature. You know, you can witness it in kind of the desires of people, you could say, mostly in Western cultures who want to go out and explore like third world countries usually, or how people might revere indigenous cultures and such. And it's not necessarily wrong of them to go looking for such a thing, because I think within those remaining tribal peoples, we see rites of purpose and rites of passage, you know, and we can witness initiations and things like that. And we can see all that, not just as something meaningful, but also as something that's missing in our own lives. And also something that the civilized world just doesn't offer, you know, and it can't offer it also. And so part of the draw or the allure from people, which is mostly Western white people specifically, part of being drawn to foreign countries or being drawn to Native American practices or something like that is because the natural tribal expression of their own people and their own ways has been domesticated and it's been made civilized. So it's like a wild animal that kind of loses its will to live when put into captivity. You know, we're just not the same anymore when we're disconnected from from place. You know, you could say we become foreigners within our own world. And in a way, their world or their culture, our world, our culture, is it's not our tribe. And I think there's a sense of that. And so, you know, that tribal essence, right? The tribal soul within all that is gone from us. And so what else are we to do but to go out in search of that soul in the form of someone else, someone else's tribal or ritualistic exp experience, you know? Or another thing people do is they also commune with nature to seek fulfillment in the ways that are lacking. And that's all good too. But the problem with doing that, the problem with going out and trying to look for it in the form of somebody else's religion or whatever it might be or their culture, it's ultimately it can be very inauthentic, you could say, and become vampirical. You know, it could become what you could call spiritual tourism. 
because it can't replace the authenticity of that primal expression that is a true tribal state of mind. And that's something that really only exists through a combination of things like rooted mythology and then ritual with that. And so mythology and ritual are aspects of life that in their own way are kind of life-giving entities of sorts, right? They're elemental forces, or you could say they're even God, or they're archetypes, as Jung called them. And so that experience of communing with these forces is simply not something that can be manufactured or bought or sold or you know, rendered down to mere ideas or constructs on a weekend escape or something like that. Because what those experiences are, they're transcendent. And they happen and they exist through things like a rich cultural devotion. Okay, They can't be controlled or you can't put them into a box as a single serving, right? They require things like devotion and they require sacrifice of which can really only be found within a tribal setting or or a long time of cohesive kind of generated energy that happened through people working in unison together and agreeing on the way that they want to live. It's at least one way as I see it. But I do also think that, you know, the individual or the lone traveler or seeker can also have profound moments of initiation and awe-inspiring experiences, you know, especially spending time in nature. But ultimately, I think tribal cohesion is what allows us to carry those experiences with us through our lives and also into then our daily mundane practices. Or at least you could say that tribe is also something that helps maintain a sense of devotion and also responsibility to those sacred components of life that many of us are seeking. And so basically what people think they're getting by seeking those experiences outside of themselves or by way of a tourist attraction or something, what they're getting and receiving is also, it is something real that's there that can offer a deeper meaning but ultimately, it's a superficial reflection that's hidden. It's hiding the deeper truths of it. And I guess to me, that's kind of one example also of something that's symbolic of the state of humanity or the path that global society is on right now. It all it kind of expresses itself as this watered-down version. And it's unrooted, and it's expressed in constructs and abstracts rather than the simple nature of a rooted existence. And so that's point number eight, that tribe is what connects us to a deep and a primal meaning of life. And one of the great heists of civilization, you could say, has been to convince people that by adhering to its philosophies of equality and social justice and open borders and things like that. One of their, one of that heist is that people as tribes or as cultures can also simultaneously somehow keep their own ways of life intact. And this is just false. And we need to be honest about that. You know, the real aim of the dominant culture is assimilation or annihilation. And let's be honest, that should actually probably be the case for any culture, right? You're either in or you're out. And so that just is what it is. But if anything, it's very revealing in that it exposes the global ideology as one that still actually has tribal tendencies for all that it's worth. Okay, the difference is that their tribal tendencies or expressions, they aren't a part of a holistic and natural system. So what happens is they end up expressing themselves in a very perverted form. And, excuse me, and that form, I think, is something that we can give a name to, 
which is going to bring us here to the last point, which is point number nine. Point number nine is collectivism is a unholy and unnatural tribal expression. So collectivism actually does appeal to people in that it's an expression of a tribal tendency for group cohesion. But in that it has exceeded its limitations as a social construct, it has actually become anything but tribal. And that's the key point. It's exceeded its natural limitations. It is tribalism outside of natural boundaries. Okay, Collectivism, you could say, is a pretense of tribalism in a way because it's operating under the guise of this idea that we're all one humanity, the human race as it's known. And so therefore, that's the justification for us to all act and think the same way and therefore also play by the same rules. And it's actually quite the clever game of manipulation in that it's telling everyone one way that we shouldn't act, which is tribally, while simultaneously acting in that very way. See how that works? So what it is is it's a toxic mimic of tribalism. Okay, It appeals to natural inclinations of humanity, but the end results are something totally contrary to our natural inclinations. And I hope that makes sense to you, because it's something I've been thinking about a lot, and it's seeming to make perfect sense to me. And so, bioregionalism, which is, in many ways kind of the foundational point of place-based, bioregionalism is a means of understanding natural law, or it's a means of understanding ecological law, or the philosophy of nature. And what it can do is it can help us understand where the tribal ends and the collective begins, because they're two very different things that we need to differentiate. And we need to understand this level of scalability between the two because that understanding is what keeps us grounded or rooted in the reality of how the earth herself operates. Okay? So, one of those constructs or the modes of being, if you will, operates within the observed and learned limitations of the natural world. And the other seeks total control of the natural world. One of them actually promotes and upholds the importance of the individual, and the other exploits the individual. One of them is honest in its forms of natural and hierarchical leadership, and the other allows fakeries to rule. And it does this in the way that when a person is operating in a large enough group it's very easy for them to kind of float around and stay disguised. You know, it's much more difficult to be held accountable to a peer group or a rooted culture because the truth of a situation or of how a person portrays themselves is much more easily revealed in a smaller group setting. You know, we can see that in our current system by how responsibility for the cause of a situation is always passed on to someone else or to something else, you know, truth becomes lost in the layers of bureaucracy. Or maybe you could say, people will say it's like, uh, it's a collective responsibility, which again is ultimately an abstract idea. Okay. There's no such thing as a collective responsibility. It doesn't exist in nature, and it doesn't exist in human nature either, okay? It's an idea that's unnatural, not real. <clears throat> and so that leads us to the division line between these two opposing systems of social organizations, which I think can be seen and recognized by one common factor. And that is one 
of relationships. The collectivist point of view is one that is totally disconnected from their relationships, not just socially and governmentally, but also by way of the natural world and all of its various life-giving forces. You know, I think there's many examples of who and also why this is the case. You know, you can look at government and corporations, which are basically one and the same as collective models. And then from there, you go down the list and you see the food system, which is totally fucked. And that's directly linked to our healthcare system. And from there, you know, we have media and the storytellers, whoever that is. All those people, the people feeding us information about how the world functions and giving us recommendations of people of which we can emulate ourselves after and tips and tricks to live a good life and such, you know. And all those people, they report on the latest and scientific theories and all that, which tells us how the world is. And then, of course, the economy is part of that which is that thing by which all other things in the world are given a value. You know, you can hardly even make a decision for yourself without first calculating how it might affect the GDP or at least your own finances. You know, never mind the consequences, too, that any of those decisions of value have on the rest of the world, right? It's all good as long as it creates economic value. And so at the heart of that or the lack of heart in all of that is one thing. And that one thing is sovereignty. Every single aspect of the collective is one that seeks to strip you, the individual of your ability to make sovereign decisions for yourself. And it does this because as a society or as a culture, what it has done is, is it has outgrown its capacity to exist naturally without also controlling every minute detail that allows it to function. Okay. In other words, it has exceeded its limitations of the natural world and can therefore only exist as an artificial replacement for the real thing. Okay. It's a shell of its former self. And any differing mode or way of being in the world will always be a contradiction to any collective form of governance, right? And that's basically what it is. That's collectivism, to me at least. At least as I see it and what it looks like when we contrast it next to tribalism. And so bioregionalism and place-based consciousness is the blueprint for us to rediscover our way back to reality. It's not an ideology, it's not a political solution, but it is natural law, it is ecological law, and it is a guide towards the philosophy of nature. And by the nature of coming to see the world in its unique diversity, we can understand that the cultural expressions from each place are going to look very different and therefore absolutely can never be contained or controlled under one common belief system. You know, just as the natural world evolves and adapts based on changes in the environment, it also makes changes based on the consequences of its own decisions. And it also makes no promises to us for salvation or redemption. You know, every animal and plant and fungus in this world is engaged in an entangled mess of conflict as well as cohesion. And humans are no different. You could say it's what we make of it for ourselves that will ultimately determine what our experience looks like. And so that friends, listeners, and others, is not only the nutshell, you could say, of play-space media, but it's also a little taste of what's inside the nut, and also maybe a glimpse of what that nut might grow into. I guess it's my 
best go at an explanation of what we stand for. And this podcast is just going to be one method by which we hope to convey some of these ideas to you. What it ultimately kind of grows into, I'd say that no one can really say. But I do hope that you enjoyed listening, and I hope it at least inspired you to imagine all the different gods and all the different heavens and the hells that might be out there vying for your hearts and minds. Which ones will you commune with should be your question. Which ones might you allow to speak through you? This is Devin Hess with Based Roots, and thank you for listening.